It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Din is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau. And out in center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Now the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians, third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Tribe fans. It's been a while since we recorded a podcast. Uh, Once the season got going, it was kind of hard to pull myself away from my in-season duties. But here we are, uh, back for another episode of our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. Uh, If you can't tell, maybe from the background noise, I'm actually recording this at the ballpark. And uh, so you might get some of that ambiance of uh, of, uh, piped-in fan noise. But I wanted to get a uh, a podcast in before this weekend series against Pittsburgh because it's going to be the 75th anniversary of when the Cleveland Buckeyes took on the Homestead Grays in the Negro League World Series. And... Um, you know, it's a fitting way to end the season with those two teams uh, on the 75th anniversary. So it's kind of a neat coincidence. And like the 1920 World Series that we highlighted through a series of podcasts, we wanted to also touch on this topic because we felt that it was very important. And on this episode, we actually have three guests that I'm going to uh, add into this, um, each bringing a different perspective to uh, the podcast and the the topic. And uh, first is Dr. Stephanie uh, Lisio, who is a fellow Jack Greeny board member, uh, Sabre Group in Northeast Ohio. So making a plug for Sabre. If you love history and you love baseball, and uh, I mean, you don't even have to be an Indians fan, you can be a fan of 
you know, the Yankees and you could still be a part of this if you live in Northeast Ohio. Um, she's actually the author of a book called Cleveland Baseball, Media Activism, The Integration of the Indians and the Demise of the Negro League Buckeyes. My second guest is Sean Gibson, who is the great grandson of Josh Gibson, who played for the Grays and is a major uh, baseball Hall of Famer and one of the greatest players in Negro League history and in baseball history. And uh, Sean is the direct, executive director of the Josh Gibson Foundation. And finally, we have Michael Matthews, who is co-leader of the Community Cup Classic Foundation. Uh, they've been putting on events uh, in regards to the Negro Leagues in terms of getting the history out there and getting people engaged. And what I love about doing this podcast is the ability to chat with um, historians or other um, people that are more well-versed in certain topics than I am. I'm not going to lie. You know, the Negro League isn't my strongest suit, but there are people out there that write books or, or just know a lot about it. And, um, you know, being able to chat with Josh Gibson's, you know, great grandson. I mean, that's pretty neat. If you, again, are into history or, or just, you know, into baseball or, or whatever, but, um, it was just really exciting. And in my own research, actually, one of the more fascinating things that I've kind of come across is an article from the September 30th, 1867 plane dealer. And the little blurb says, To show the immense popularity of the game of baseball, we will state that on Saturday last, 22 baseball clubs were practicing on the grounds between Kinsman and Scoville Streets. Two of the clubs were composed of Negroes. So there you have, you know, two full teams um, back in 1867. So, again, they didn't list their names. It would have been neat to find out. But um, baseball in Cleveland has been been played for a while now. And uh, you find these little historical nuggets when you're doing research and it's it's always pretty cool and in my conversation with stephanie again she's an expert on cleveland negro league history she talks about the emergence of cleveland's negro league history uh, with a gentleman named george tate who helped form that first team in cleveland Negro League Baseball in Cleveland early on after the, the league formed and the Negro National League formed in 1920 was always a little, I don't want to say questionable, it just it was having trouble getting off the ground. And there were always theories as to why this was happening and what was going on. And there were some, some strange things that were going on. And it's always been um, kind of a tough thing for people to find more information on. Like I spent a long time looking at some of these 1920s teams. And in some cases, I was only finding paragraphs worth of of information and that's going through the time the the Cullen Post wasn't around yet in the 20s but the Cleveland Gazette was you know going through that going through the Chicago Defender going through the Pittsburgh Courier going through other archival sources there's a lot of things that and a lot of people who have looked into this and I keep hoping that someone is going to you know find something that I missed and and figure it out but it's it's been kind of tough but you have the first team called the Cleveland Tate Stars in 1922 that was run by a man named George Tate and he was an Oberlin grad, which it was kind of the big deal that Oberlin accepted African-American students. And so it was this, this guy, he came and he was a good businessman and everyone was really excited about this. And they thought this is a guy that's really going to propel Cleveland forward, you know, because it's been two years since the league started and they really haven't gotten anything off the ground. 
And so he then forms this team. He sells stock in the team. He sells season tickets. Like he has a very kind of organized setup going on. But then you get to May, I think it's like late May, early June, and you have the team's treasurer go to the media and say, I want to come to you and tell you that something is not right here. He said that he hadn't been allowed to see any of the books yet. He didn't know what was going on financially with them. It was a roster put together in many ways by a lot of kind of sandlot players that they found. You know, maybe one or two guys were league caliber players, but otherwise really not so much. And there was now this concern about money, especially that they'd sold stock and season tickets and all this other stuff. And there, I've never been able to find out what went on. I just know that whatever it was, the paper alluded to something having happened. And when the season ended, like, you know, boy, we, we were really wrong about these guys, you know, they didn't give anybody their money for their investment. And, you know, it was, it was questionable about what was going on. And there's theories about that. Um, Anything, it could be just, you know, someone who really just didn't know what they were doing. And they were kind of, you know, kind of stumbling through it and figuring it out while they were doing it, all the way up to there was something criminal going on because there were folks who always needed the legitimate business to run their their bootlegging operation, let's say. You know, there was something like that. So it's tough to say what this was, if this was just people who kind of didn't understand business or something more nefarious. And then that team lasted, um, they came back in 1923, and they didn't finish the season. And that was actually something that happened kind of frequently. A team ran out of money in May or June. You know, you think of, okay, this is a team. They, they at least will keep it together for the season. But that just didn't happen. I think they they maybe made it not even to the 4th of July. So they're gone. So there you have the first uh, Negro League team in Cleveland. Obviously, you know, when you start something up, things can get kind of shaky. But there were several teams to follow the Tate All-Stars, as you will hear from Stephanie. Then for 1924, you have a man come forward. Um, his last name was Hooper. And he put a new team in place and they were actually called the Cleveland Browns. And he renamed, they had a ballpark um, somewhere around East 55th called um, Tate Field. He renamed it Hooper Field. And then he, you know, they made this point of saying, okay, this is under new management. It's competent. You don't have to worry. There's nothing shady going on. And, you know, he brought back though a lot of the same players and even some of the front office people were the same. So it was sort of, you know, we're, we're, this is our new team. We're kind of rebranding but we still have sort of the same other structure. And then you continue to have that through the 1920s. By 1926, you have a team that I've heard it pronounced elites and elites, um, but they only won six games, uh, league matches, because that's the other thing. Teams would play non-league matches. You know, they'd barnstorm around. They'd play league matches. Um, they only won six games. And I think at one point when, like, the really good teams in the league at the time, like the Birmingham Black Barons or Memphis, when they come to town, um, they would just slaughter them and people would start cheering for the other team just because it was almost comical that they were doing so poorly. But then again, that's like I said, a lot of times they didn't have players of a professional caliber while the other teams did. And it was always like you see things written, especially in the Chicago Defender, about what's Cleveland's problem. Like, why can't they get a team going? They have a growing African-American population with Southern migration. Why can't why can't this stick? And I think part, I mean, there's several reasons why these teams folded. I mean, obviously, there's something financially strange going on um, early on. You know, there's, you get the Great Depression at the end of that. But in some cases, you know, it's, I think it comes back in some ways because they complained about attendance and people weren't attending games. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. And I think it 
in many ways comes back to Cleveland's always had, even, you know, with the Indians, problems with attendance at times. Like, you know, the 40s and 50s were good, the 90s were good. And the other times it's always like, why aren't fans coming? Why is, you know, even in the, you know, which you would probably know about more than I, that early on in the 1900s, you know, teams knew fans aren't coming like they expect they would or they think they should. And I think that kind of bleeds over to the Negro Leagues, that they just weren't getting the crowds they needed and the money they needed to really survive, which means you're not getting the players that are going to be good and they're going to, going to you know, propel your team forward. And then um, one of the more interesting controversies came, I think it was 1928. Wouldn't have been the there was like the Hornets and the Tigers. I think it might have been the, the Tigers. They didn't want to play at Tate slash Hooper Field. They said, you know, there were a lot of complaints about it. Basically, the bathrooms there clogged up. And, and they said men would just go around the outfield wall and start going to the bathroom out in the open, you know, and because there was no other option, you know, and it was just sort of didn't have shade and the seats were terrible and just everything about it was bad. And they wanted to find a better place to play. And one of those places was Luna Park, which had a stadium that I think held two or 3,000 people. And they had a lot of parking. It was on a train line. And there were a lot of options for folks. But the problem was there was a boycott of Luna Park actively because of their segregation policies. So do you go there when there's active boycotts? Now, are fans really going to come out there if, you know, they're, they're really following the boycott? But, you know, what's the other option? So they do... They do go there and play. And then there was one other park I found um, called Kinsman Hardware Field that I'm guessing was somewhere on Kinsman, but I haven't yet been able to find it if anyone happens to know <laughs> where that's at. Then you get to the, the mid-1930s and you're starting to finally see teams play um, Rent League Park from the Indians and play there. So you get through, like, let's say up through 1934, which the 1934 team was called the Cleveland Red Sox. You know, sort of the height of the Depression. Out of all of those teams from 1922 to 1934, I think there were, there's only one that had a record above 500. And it was a team that had like a very young satchel page on it in 1931. Otherwise, those teams are just absolutely um, pretty, pretty abysmal. And then by the time you get to 1939, 1940, that's the Cleveland Bears. And one of those years, they finished at 500. And that was the last, you know, sort of even 500 season before you get to the Buckeyes who did have success. And one interesting thing about the Bears Similar to some of those early teams, there's a lot of names on the Bears, both in the front office and on the field, that sort of carry over to the Buckeyes. In fact, one interesting thing is one of the owners of the Bears is later an umpire during the Buckeyes years. And then by the time you get to the Buckeyes, they, they really have a great showing in 1942. They finish a lot better. They do a lot better than people think they're going to. Um, and then you have in 1945, they sort of shock the world. They beat the Homestead Grays, who were just sort of the powerhouse team at the time. They had an offense that was insane and they really shut that offense down. And that was sort of a big moment. And it was sort of the team's kind of last big moment. In 47, they went back to the World Series and lost to the New York Cubans. And in my conversations with Stephanie, you know, she mentions how hard it was to do some of this research. And you know, I went through the Plain Dealer archives just to kind of see what the Plain Dealer reported on for, you know, the Buckeyes in that season. And it is really sparse. Um, you know, obviously they were covering the Indians. They were in the midst of, of World War II as well. But even for that uh, World Series, the coverage wasn't, you know, it was tucked in the back parts of the sports section. Now, when they opened up at home uh, 
the May 28, 1945, Plain Dealer mentioned that Mayor Burke threw out the first pitch. You know, they were playing a lot of doubleheaders. And then on July 17, 1945, I, I thought it was neat. It said the Buckeyes tackle the Cincinnati Clowns Sunday afternoon at League Park and next Tuesday uh, at the Municipal Stadium against the Kansas City Monarchs, who were obviously a draw as they had uh, the paper set of a starring Leroy Satchel Page. So Satch getting to pitch at Municipal Stadium, where only a couple years later he'd be pitching in the World Series for the Cleveland Ball Club. So again, a pretty neat coincidence or a series of events taking place that who, if he knew what the future held, I mean, it's pretty, uh, pretty cool foreshadowing. And getting back to that World Series, Cleveland was going against you know, the juggernauts of the Negro League, the Homestead Grays. That team included Josh Gibson, who we'll, we'll get to in a minute. Now, the first game of the Negro League World Series took place on September 13th uh, at Cleveland's League Park. And, you know, in the past, I've mentioned if you haven't been to League Park, make sure you get to League Park. It is such a neat history site. Um, you know, very few places around this country that, you know, the old ballparks weren't built over. And there you could stand on the same mounds as baseball legends and uh, same field as, again, these these great. So I'm going to keep harping on getting out to League Park. Do it. You won't regret it. But in game one, it was a tie game until the seventh when uh, Quincy Troop, who was the player manager, tripled and scored on a fly. And then Cleveland scored another run the eighth when in the ninth, Josh Gibson singled home a runner, but was eventually erased to end the game on a double play. And Game 2 took place the next day at League Park with the Homestead taking a 2-0 advantage going into the 8th. That's when Cleveland tied it up. And then in the bottom of the ninth, Troop doubled and advanced to third on a wild pitch. The next batter was intentionally walked and then stole second, forcing the Grays to then walk the next batter. Uh, it's when the pitcher, Bremer, hit a, a walk-off. It was went over the fence for a ground rule double, and a few accounts say they won 4-2. to Other accounts say it was 3-2 to just because... Uh, You didn't need the extra run. The series moved to Washington uh, at Griffith Stadium on September 18th, and that was a three-hit shutout for the Buckeyes. George Jefferson notched the uh, 4-0 win for Cleveland, and then Game 4 was at Shy Park on September 20th where uh, the Buckeyes pushed across two runs in the first and wound up as 5-0 winners, and they ended up winning the title then. 5-0 Five nothing in a four-game sweep against again the best team in the Negro Leagues. And going back to my research in the Plain Dealer, it's a research. It was a pretty quick search in the uh, digital archives. After the, the Buckeyes won, there really wasn't much of an article. It mentioned that uh, Cleveland Buckeyes champions of the Negro American League dethroned the Homestead Grays, National League Monarchs as Negro World Baseball champions here tonight by capturing a 5-0 triumph. The victory was the fourth straight for the Buckeyes in the series, which started in Cleveland last Thursday. The Grays had captured the world title six years in succession. Cleveland won the opener 2-1, triumphed 4-2 in Cleveland last Sunday, and walloped the Grays 4-0 in Washington Tuesday night. Uh, Frank Carswell tamed the Grays uh, with four hits tonight. The Buckeyes and Grays play an exhibition doubleheader at Yankee Stadium Sunday, and then we'll return to Cleveland Stadium for another exhibition twin bill on September 30th. And here I wanted to get 
the other team's perspective, uh, I was able to talk to Josh Gibson's great-grandson, Sean, which is always neat to talk to relatives of great players in baseball history. So um, next you're going to hear from Sean about uh, Josh and, and the Grays. All right, so uh, my name is Sean Gibson. I'm the great-grandson of Josh Gibson, and I am the executive director of the Josh Gibson Foundation here located in Pittsburgh. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about Josh. So you talk about Josh Gibson. I'm one of the greatest baseball players that played the game of baseball. And I say greatest, one of the greatest baseball players because I don't consider him as one of the greatest Negro League baseball players. I think a lot of people try to identify Major League Baseball um, the difference between Major League Baseball and Negro League Baseball. Yes, there were two different teams. Of course, we all know that in two different um, organizations, two different leagues. But when you talk about great baseball players, uh, Josh Kitts is one of the greatest ones that played the game. You know, Josh died at a very young age. He died in the year of 1947. As we all know, that's the same year that Jackie Robinson broke the caliber. So we never, Josh never had a chance to play the majors nor did he ever have a chance to see Jackie Robinson cross over. But he played for two of the greatest teams that we consider right here in Pittsburgh, which is the Homestead Grays and the Pittsburgh Crawfords. He got to Pittsburgh when he was very young from a small town right outside of Atlanta, Georgia, called Buena Vista, Georgia. And he moved to Pittsburgh in the early ages of um, 11 years old. Started playing Sandlot baseball with the Pittsburgh Crawford Sandlot team and went from the Sandlot teams to the Homestead Grays and back to the Pittsburgh proper. So Josh's career spanned over 17 years. Josh is known for his home run greatness, but he's also was a great defensive catcher as well. He played catcher, which many of us know is one of probably the toughest and hardest positions in baseball. And to be able to endure uh, that position as a catcher being crushed down during the whole time of the game, and also basically just controlling the game with the signs and signals to um, – to direct the pitcher. So, you know, not only was he a great hitter, he was also a great defensive player as well and played one of the toughest positions in the game of baseball. So when you talk about his legacy, um, we can go on and on and on about Josh's legacy, but he was also the second player, uh, Negro League baseball player, I should say, inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1972 behind Satchel Page in 1971. And the one thing I do want to mention regarding the Hall of Fame, um, Ted Williams, give him a lot of credit. During his Hall of Fame speech, he mentions that one day he hopes the great Negro League baseball players like Josh Gibson and Satchel Page being inducted into the Hall of Fame. So that was in 66. Five years later, Satchel Page went in 71, and then Josh went in 72. And I just feel as though with him giving that uh, speech, he didn't have to do that. And for him to mention that was, was great on our behalf, and I just believe that him mentioning those great players that started the role of getting these new league baseball players into the uh, into the Hall of Fame. So, you know, the last thing I would like to talk about is that Rube Foster, um, who created the Negro Leagues. Here we are celebrating the centennial of the Negro Leagues, the one-year anniversary. Negro League was founded back in 1920, February 13th. And here we are celebrating 20 years, I mean, 100 years of the Negro Leagues, 2020. And it wasn't for Rube Foster. I believe it would not have been a Josh Gibson. So as we all say is that Ruth felt that like, okay, well, if they can't let us play with them, we'll just beat them. And they played against the barnstorming teams in the Major League Baseball. And a lot of times the Major League Baseball players lost against the Major League Baseball players. So 
that I firmly believe is that um, Ruth Foster was for his was was before his time, and he uh, definitely was a mastermind in Detroit, the Negro Leagues, and I firmly believe it wasn't for him would that have been a Josh Gibson. I also wanted to learn more about the Homestead Grays because they had a unique situation where they not only represented one city, they actually represented two different cities and uh, clarified that and, and spoke about them. In Pittsburgh, I mean, the Homestead Grays um, actually were two teams. Well, I should say two teams. The Homestead Grays was one team that played in two different cities. Of course, Homestead here located outside the city of Pittsburgh. And then they also played in Washington, D.C. as the Washington Homestead Grays. So sometimes if you see the Homestead Grays uniform and the one that has a W on the sleeve, on the left-hand side of the sleeve, store for the Washington Homestead Grays. And I think a lot of people get confused thinking it was actually two teams. It was actually one team. So Josh Gibson played for the Homestead Grays in Pittsburgh as well as D.C. It was just that D.C. did not have a Negro League baseball team and so the mayor of D.C. and the owner, Cumberland Posey, made a gentleman's agreement and decided to play half their games here in Forest Field at the, uh, in Pittsburgh and the other at Grissom Stadium in D.C. And so when you talk about the Homestead Grays, you know, you're talking about one of the greatest teams, again, not just in the Negro Leagues, but in baseball. They won their nine pennants in a row. Um from 1937-1945, and Josh was one of the main guys behind that team with his co-partner, Buck Leonard, and also cool Papa Bell. And then you talk about they won two World Series in the 1942-44, and then in 45 when they played the Cleveland Buckeyes, which was Josh's last World Series. Um, the Cleveland Buckeyes uh, was their first World Series, and they beat the Homestead Grays. Actually, they just didn't beat them. They just kind of destroyed them. It was a seven-game series, and they actually beat them four games to none. And that team that they beat was probably one of the, one of the greatest best teams ever because they had actually five future five Hall of Famers on that team: uh, Ray Brown, Judd Wilson, Buck Leonard, Old Papa Bell, and Josh Gibson. Um, and of course, Cleveland had the great Sam Jethro, who actually um, grew up, who actually lived not too far here in Pittsburgh from Pittsburgh and Erie, Pennsylvania. So when you talk about that team there that the uh, Buckeyes beat was one of the, you know, not only did they beat them four games to nine, um, but it was a great team that they beat, probably one of the best teams that the Grays had. And so when you look at the, when you go back on that, the Grays, um, you know, they should have, they on paper, they should have won the game, but, you know, Buckeyes pulled it out and, you know, congrats to the Buckeyes for winning their first uh, World Series in 1945. As Sean says, that was Josh's last World Series, and uh, Josh actually passed away at 35 years old, and I think it's mentioned in the Ken Burns documentary that he died of a broken heart because he wasn't able to integrate baseball and be the first, you know, being this great player. But, you know, uh, Sean doesn't think that's necessarily the case, and, um, you know, the reason Josh actually died was a brain tumor, but it makes for, I guess, an even more tragic story if you add the heartbreak in there. You know, when Josh died, there was this whole mythical story of he died of a broken heart. And the broken heart was that he was not the first. Um, Jackie was. 
you know, talking to my family, my so my grandfather Josh Gibson Jr. also played in the Negro Leagues, and he was 16 years old, 15, about to be 16 years old when his father passed away. So he wasn't a little boy, so he kind of remembers a lot of things that was going on with his father. And also he traveled um, during the summer as a bad boy for the Homestead Grays. And so when he talked about Josh down of a broken heart and bitter, he was upset that Jackie was a first. Um, no, that was that's not true. Um, you know, those first of all, those guys were just happy to see someone cross over. Um, it, it was taking so long for someone to finally have color break into the majors. They had no reason to be. They had no time to be upset. <laughs> you know, they had no time to be upset or be bitter about who went first. Now, was Jackie, as far as talent-wise, was Jackie probably the best um, talent-wise? No. People say that all the time. Um, you know, there was other better baseball players talent-wise than Jackie. But I think when Branch Rickey decided to go with the first African-American player, he wanted a well-rounded player. Um, you know, people know Jackie's background. He was a UCLA grad, went to UCLA. He was also in the military, and he was a great athlete. So I think, I think, no, I think I'm pretty sure that played a lot into his decision with the military background, especially with the military background. So when you talk about Josh not being the first, or he being upset about not being the first, or down of a broken heart. Now nah, we don't. I don't believe that. Um, you know, Josh died of a brain tumor, um, and you know, I wish he did have a broken heart because you can you can come back from a broken heart. Um, but he died of a brain tumor, and you know, like I say, he never had a chance to see Jackie. He died 1947, January 1947. So he never had a chance to see Jackie Robinson cross over. And um, but as far as being the first or being upset or broken hearted. Nah, he was he was fine with it. I mean, like I said, those guys were just happy to see uh, one of the black baseball players finally, finally get a chance to play in the majors. And then, as we all say, the rest is history. Because after that, Larry Doby, your guy, comes to Cleveland, uh, which I think he doesn't get enough credit because you know it seems like the guy who comes in second never gets credit. But it's always the first. But we all know Larry Doby was a hell of a player, and. Um, he knew the second one gone, and he went to Cleveland, and then so on and so on. And then, you know, next thing you know, um, by 1950, um, there was not really a Negro Leagues around. In 1950 was the last year to Homestead Grays. And then there were still some teams going around playing, uh, some barnstorming and some semi-pro games, and that's when they added a few of the female players in there. But really, the Negro Leagues probably started folding around 1950, so... Um, African-American talent started proving themselves and taking over, and the white owners finally started taking some African-American baseball players. But I will say this. And Sean also wanted to talk about a movement that was going on to rename the MVP award after his great-grandfather. You see a lot of things that was going on, and right now there's been a, um, a movement I should say from some of former some former MVPs to remove Kennesaw Landis Kennesaw Mountain Landis name off of the MVP award. Uh, for some of you who may not know, Kennesaw Landis was the commissioner of Major League Baseball during the time in the early 1920s, and he was the one who actually segregated baseball. He did not ask an Americans an opportunity to play baseball. 
Well, Kennesaw came from um, law enforcement background. He was a judge. At that time, there was a, a scandal going over gambling at the Chicago Black Sox, and he was coming in to clean up baseball. Well, he cleaned up baseball, but he didn't let the African-Americans play baseball. And so right now, um, Gary Larkin, Mike Smith, Terry Pendleton, and a few other former MVP winners um, are suggesting that that name, Kennesaw Mount Landis, should be removed off of the MVP awards. And so one of the names they're considering is Josh Gibson. The other two is Branch Rickey, and we know Branch's story. And the other name is Frank Robinson, not Jackie, Frank Robinson, the um, only player to win MVP in both leagues, as well as the first black manager. So we feel like Josh is a great candidate. Um, you know, we feel as though Josh would have made or won, I should say, several MVPs. We had an opportunity to play in the majors. But our story is more of a poetic justice um, type of story, a redemption type of story. It's, it kind of goes whereas how ironic would it be for someone um, to replace this, for someone to replace the guy who denied not only Josh, but the other great African-American baseball players an opportunity and be replaced by one of those guys that he denied. So, you know, our push is we didn't expect to be in a race. We just happened to come across an AP article that talked about Barry Larkin and Mike Smith and the rest of those guys removing it. Uh, his name off of the MVP award. And as I'm reading the article, I see the names are considering. And I see, like I said, Frank Robinson, Branch Rickey, and I see Josh Gibson. So I'm like, okay, well, well, since we're in the race, let's, let's see what we can do. Let's try to win the race. So we did the article that defeated. Um, got a great buzz on that article. Got some great social media push on it. And, um, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm talking to a few. The Baseball Writers Association makes the decision on the MVP award and as far as renaming it. I'm talking to some of those writers. Um, the baseball winter meetings are being held this year in Dallas in December. Not knowing if it's going to be something they're going to do in person or virtually. Um, but from what I was told that this may be up for discussion um, as far as what they want to do as far as renaming the MVP award. And um, not to say that anything will is in stone because of with COVID going on. So, you know, our goal is right now is we do have a petition on our website. You can go to our website, joshgibson.org. If you, uh, there's articles on there as well. You know, once you read the article, if you feel like that's something you want to be a part of, uh, please sign the petition. Um, share the petition as well. Uh, there's no set number of signatures we're trying to get, just more of just something we want to do to send out. It was actually done by a guy named Tom Weaver. But the most important thing is just that um, you know, we feel though, you know, there's the other two great guys um, in the race, but we feel like Josh makes a great, is a great candidate to rename the MVP after Josh Gibson. And finally, I was able to connect with Michael Matthews of the Community Cup Classic Foundation. And if you don't know about the Community Cup Classic Foundation, it was created to improve adult engagement in all facets of a young person's development. On the website, it says their work creates avenues where youth are shown appreciation by those within their community, their social groups, and most importantly, by those that reside in their homes. And with the anniversary of the Negro Leagues, as well as the Cleveland Buckeyes Championship, they had a whole slew of events set up for this season. However, with COVID, it kind of um, 
change the direction of what they were able to do? This year was the culmination of about two years of planning. Uh, we've been talking with Sean uh, regularly about kind of what we could do for the 75th anniversary of the Buckeyes, as well as the 100th year of the Negro League, and kind of build that with community engagement and all the other work that we're doing as both foundations. Um, so prior to pandemic, the full year was to consist of youth baseball clinics. Uh, we were going to do kind of baseball games, celebrating youth in the community, city of Cleveland, entering suburbs. Um, but then also around the weekend of the 75th anniversary, kind of build a whole calendar of events to highlight that uh, with the celebrity softball game, youth clinic. Um, and then kind of throughout the year, we were going to do a series of historical presentations that were going to be led by Ike. Uh, and those were to primarily keep people engaged throughout the year. Um, so we had a number of people that we could talk through as we had scheduled them. Um, but it was also to get much needed information about the Negro Leagues just in the community. Often when you hear Ike's presentation, you forget that you're listening to him talk about baseball because it's so much of how baseball was intertwined just with the social climate. And then you throw in that he's talking about Negro League baseball. It's more than just the baseball presentations. They were absolutely history presentations. So we had reached out to the county library. We had scheduled face-to-face -face meetings that he was going to do with the library. We had talked to a different number of the youth development organizations throughout greater Cleveland to have him go speak in front of youth during the summer. Um, and again, built in with the regular calendar of events. We had built in a whole series of these community health hub pop-ups to have Ike go in and kind of talk in the community out at festivals, the Glenville Festival, Festival of Mount Pleasant, just to talk about it, to truly bring awareness to what was happening. The 75th anniversary of the Buckeyes, the 100th anniversary of Negro Leagues, get everybody focused on September 12th, and then the pandemic hit, and we kind of had to be flexible. So we were able to continue with the historical presentations. We scheduled two a month. Um, they ran from um, June uh, through every through September. They'll continue through November. Uh, it's been a great way for us to continue to get the word out about the history presentations. Um, our first actual presentation, we had people from Switzerland, Germany, the UK. Um, and we've noticed because of the shift to virtual, we were not only able to impact greater Cleveland, but also pretty much nationwide. So we regularly have people from all over the country that are tuning in Saturdays at 10 a.m. to hear the presentations. We've talked about Luke Easter. Um, we talked about Leon Day. Uh, I think our biggest turnout was kind of a diversity one that we did on the women Negro League players. We had a women's group from New Jersey that was able, their entire group came on, and they made it a book club discussion continuing further, and they've actually made it a mission of theirs to start going out to do more research, just not on those that 
were named as women Negro League players, but just other women that played baseball. So it truly has sparked a whole different conversation. Um, we also ran a virtual coding program that went eight weeks this summer called United in Code, and we embedded the historical presentations and the whole concept of talking about social climate and the role that the Cleveland Indians played um, just in that curriculum that we ran for the summer. So I came in three weeks, he did two presentations to the youth, and then the last week he had them do a Negro League history, City of Cleveland Jeopardy game that was awesome for them to see. Um, so it's been amazing. It's something that we're going to continue throughout. So even though we're highlighting the 75th anniversary and the 100th year of the Negro, uh, Negro Leagues, we're going to continue to do these presentations um, monthly um, as long as we can. We did surveys of the participants and got ideas for new topics. So the topics continue to grow. The audience is always there. Uh, we're just happy to be able to be in a position to provide the outreach and the information to the community. And if you're interested in learning more about those programs, visit the website at communitycupclassic.com and you'll be able to find on their main page a uh, sign-up list for the presentations and other events that are going on. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Our Tribe History presented by Progressive. It was a lot to condense down into, you know, a little over a half an hour podcast. Um, my conversations with all three uh, guests were much longer, but again, uh, I try to keep these things to a, a bite-sized, uh, manageable portion. So I hope everyone enjoyed this. And again, this weekend, we take on the Pittsburgh Pirates kind of in a, uh, in a neat coincidence to end the season. Obviously, before COVID, we weren't planning on ending the season against Pittsburgh, but the way things happened here we are and uh so a pretty cool nod to what happened uh 75 years ago and again the anniversary of the negro league which has some some great cleveland history so i do want to thank everyone that joined me on the podcast and uh as season wraps up hopefully we have a long postseason and get back to more of these regular podcast. Um, but until then, thank you for listening and, uh, hopefully you enjoy this and look forward to what's to come. Go tribe. You've been listening to our tribe history presented by progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.